0: Yeah, uh
1: Good morning. If you have your bulletin, we'll look down through uh, our announcements. Today, of course, we welcome Dean and Kathy Birch, our uh, missionaries, and uh, Dean has already uh, given us quite a little information in uh, the Sunday school hour regarding his ministry and all the things that they're involved in, and this worship hour, he'll be bringing the word to us. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10 and verse 39. I'm sure you're aware we'll have a catered dinner immediately following the morning worship, and then no evening service tonight. Uh, Next Sunday would be our communion service, and again, as per our tradition, uh, no evening service and also no dinner uh, next week. Prayer Meeting Wednesday, Andrea's telephone number, financial note there. Thank you again uh, to our deacons who are working on the building, painting and installing security cameras. Pam's been working on the flower beds, and I heard a rumor that she had a paintbrush in her hand this week, too. So thank you guys very much. I, I do have an understanding of what a task that is. Did you see the pictures of the giant spider out front with the bell tower thing? They, they brought the lift in and getting the, getting the high stuff done, so better them than me on the high stuff. So um, Somebody told me to say something and I can't remember what it was. It'll come to me halfway through the sermon. Scripture for meditation this morning is from Jonah, the second chapter, 1437 in the Pew Bible. Let's stand and open our service prayer this morning. Dale, can I ask you can you can I ask you to pray for us? Oh certainly. Yeah.
2: Our God and our Father, how thankful we are for this day that you've given us again today that we can come and breathe your air and, and live on your on your earth and and give us the strength and the, faith to worship in the proper way, and we would uh, honor you in all things today. Be with um, George and Sheila, I would ask, because George gave me a call this morning, they're not coming, because Sheila's ill, and um, he's not able to drive yet. So, we are thankful for all of our people that we haven't seen
3: take your red trinity and turn to number nine number nine in the red Favorite hymn, and then give a reason why they want the favorite hymn. Anyone? Anyone? Marcy. Okay. Put you on the spot. Be thou my vision. I believe it's in brown, and it's because. Because nobody
0: else is raising
3: them. Okay. <laughs> because no one else actually. Naomi was, but I was a oh, calling on her today, no? and she knew. <laughs> Um be that my vision 382, 382 correct 382 382 It is one of my favorite hymns as well
1: going to be taken from Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 25. So Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, that's page 1872 in the Pew Bible. If you'll stand with me, we'll read together. Every time I go to read a passage of scripture, and it starts with therefore, I remember Dwayne McNeil, the pastor who married us, saying, stop and see what it's there for. (laughs) A call to persevere. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great High Priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, and for for He who promised is faithful, and let us consider how. We may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I ask that God would bless His word.
3: We you take your red hymnal again and turn to number 436,4,36 436 in the red.
4: Good morning. Got very quiet in here. <laughs> We're pleased to have Dean and Kathy Birch with us this morning, missionaries out of reaching and teaching ministry. We didn't hear much from Kathy this morning, but I'm sure she has a ministry with the women and children. And maybe we can get a chance to talk to her. We're going to have a dinner afterwards, so it'll be an opportunity there. But anyway, Dean uh, shared in the um, Sunday school hours something of the ministry that they are involved in. And what I was impressed with is he doesn't stay in one place too long. (laughs) He kind of moves all around the various uh, South American countries, Central America, and so forth. And it's interesting to see what the Lord is doing in his life and their lives as they take the gospel to people that... um, have never heard the gospel, or maybe uh, it was distorted. Uh, there's a lot of false false preachers that go into mission work, and um, that has to be counteracted. But anyway, our brother is going to come now and share uh, the word of God with us from the book of Hebrews. Come, Lord bless you.
5: All right, well, good morning. I always have higher I always have higher hopes. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll, well, never mind. Uh, well, I'm happy to be here. Um, it is a privilege to to come back again. Uh, one of the privileges that we have with our ministry is being able to travel to a number of churches and reconnect with friends um, some I've known longer than others. I remember, I think the first time I visited this church was in July, August 2004. It was after having gone to Mexico, and um, it's sad for Dan and Jess, but they got stuck with us as part of their team uh, in La Posa, Mexico, and I remember uh, that was the year Family Conference was held at this church. And they said, hey, well, if you're coming to that this year, you need to come and stay at our house. So We did. And I think Amanda, she was, what, three? I guess in 2004 she hasn't had her fourth birthday yet. And um, I remember we were leaving, Jess said, now remember, our house is your house. And it had to be two months later, out of the blue, Amanda says, Daddy, when are we going back to our house again? I said, this is our house. She says, no, our other house. I said, we don't have another house. Yes, we do. I said, no, we don't, honey. She says, yeah, you remember those nice people we stayed at and they told us that, our, that that's our house too? I'm like, oh, that one, yeah, so <clears throat> we had the chance to visit our house again last night, so thank you, Dan, for letting us into our other house last night. Um, it, is, it is good to be back here because this church has been a blessing to us in many ways, number one, allowing, you know, we make fun about this, but allowing me the privilege of being involved in youth camp um, over the past 10 years, um, that's, that's an amazing thing, just to say 10 years, wow, wow. Um, it's hard to believe 10 years has gone by, but uh, that's been a privilege, uh, but also just the encouragement, the support, both financial as well as spiritual, emotional, just encouragement that comes from so many people here, um, so it's a privilege to be back. Um, what I'm going to do, first of all, let me just bring greetings. As, as as Pastor Fred mentioned, you know, Kathy's with me, which is a good thing. A lot of times I travel and have to go solo, um, so it's good. This week, uh, we'll be after... This afternoon, we'll be heading down to Louisville and spending the week down there with two of our three children who are in Louisville, and then actually heading back to Michigan next Saturday to speak over at Swartz Creek at Sovereign Grace Baptist next Sunday. Um, so for this extended trip, it's good to not be doing that by myself and having Kathy with me. We've been married for 33 years, nine months, and one day. Yesterday was our 33-year and nine-month anniversary. Uh, only happens once. Um, But we bring you greetings from our three children, our oldest, Glenn. And all three have been here before, and they know where we are today. They were commenting about it. Uh, Glenn is 27 now. He serves with an organization called Generation Joshua Still. And actually, he's in Ottawa, Ontario today, and will be flying home later. Um, Josh and Amanda are both in Louisville. Josh is student teaching. He finished his four years of classes in May and is student teaching right now at a Christian school in Louisville. Um, He's interested in becoming a bivocational pastor both pastoring and being a school teacher, and Amanda is Amanda. Uh, she's 18. She's in her second year at Boyce College, also studying to be a teacher, and as of now, and it always may change, but as of now, her goal is to use teaching as a platform to go to the mission field, so we'll see what the Lord has in store for there. I'm excited about that and scared of it at the same time, but you know, dreading one day putting her on an airplane and saying goodbye and at the same time. What greater thing could we do than launch our children to the nations for the sake of the gospel? So pray for us Um, It's as we pray for you. Let me just say that. Uh, Let me pray right now, and then we will go to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we realize this word is your word. And therefore, as we look at it this morning, we pray ultimately, as was already prayed, that you would be the one who is our teacher. And I pray, as I do virtually every time, I have the privilege of opening your word that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my and of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What I want to do this morning is I want to do an overview of the book of Hebrews. Now, I know my children panic because when, if I'm going to preach on more than two or three verses, they say, Dad, this is going to be a long sermon. Uh, well, all I'm doing today is one whole book. And it's a book with 13 chapters, so hopefully you're settled in. We could be here for a while. Well, not really. But I think it's good to do this from time to time. I was just in Brazil two weeks ago where we did a survey of the New Testament, and what we do during that time is we do an overview of all 27 books of the New Testament. And I think that's very important because to understand... one of my favorite illustrations that i use again and again and i probably used here before is before you worry about where the little pieces go into the jigsaw puzzle the wisest thing is to know what the big picture is right before you start putting puzzle together you want to look at the big picture on the box so when you pick out a piece it's like oh i know how this fits in the problem is when it comes to a lot of the books of our bible we don't know what the big picture is and therefore we tend to misplace the pieces And when we understand things like, okay, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Matthew, he was writing primarily to Jews. And when we put those glasses on, when we read Matthew, we understand it better. Or when we look at Paul's argument to the Galatians about justification by faith alone and the importance of recognizing the freedom that we have in Christ, and you understand the big picture of Galatians, we're less likely to take pieces within Galatians and misunderstand them, interpret them out of context. And therefore, taking the time, and by the way, I was saying after Sunday school, I am so happy to be in Michigan, I'm happy to be in a northern state, because I can talk at my normal speed. Last week I was in Texas, and I do, I speak at 275 to 300 words per minute with gusts over 350. Um <laughs> Last week, I was in Texas, and they said they were able to understand me, but it was funny. After speaking, one of the men in the church came up to their pastor there, and he said, you know, Pastor, if you would speak as fast as Dean, your sermons would only be 15 minutes long. (laughs) So uh, we're going to try and do this, and if I get going too fast, just say, slow down, because I realize I have a tendency to do that, A, because I talk fast, and B, when I get to teach from the Bible, I'm excited, and when I'm excited, I talk even faster yet. So... um, What we're going to do is we're going to do an overview of the book of Hebrews just so that we understand what the main argument is and so that the next time you open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews and start reading it, you'll have a better understanding. Um, I was talking with Pastor Fred this morning about a scripture reading. I said, well, I guess we could read the whole book of Hebrews, but that probably wouldn't be wise as far as the use of our time is concerned. So let's just say this. We read a passage. We had read for us a passage from chapter 10. We're going to finish the to our time in that passage in a little while. I'm not sure how little it'll be, but in a little while when we get there. But what I want to do is I want to emphasize there are two threads that weave their way through the book of Hebrews. All right? And if we understand what these two threads are that weave their way through the book of Hebrews, we're going to understand better the argument of the book and be able to interpret it and read it more clearly. The first thread that weaves its way through the book Is what I would call the superiority or the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The author argues, and we will see this again and again and again, that Jesus is better. The word better comes up, I think, 13 times in this letter. And what he's doing, and we're going to see this, is he takes one subject and he shows how Jesus is better. And then another subject and he shows how Jesus is better. And another, and another, and another. And what he's doing, Jesus is better, he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better, to show us that Jesus is best. Now, the author here is writing, I mean, the book is called Hebrews, okay? So he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And what we can infer sometimes reading New Testament epistles, it's like listening to the other side of a, to half of a phone conversation. Okay, if Brandon's on the telephone and I'm being rude and like listening into what he's saying, while while he's on the phone talking, I can hear what he's saying, and based on what he's saying, I can maybe infer what is being said to him on the other side by the way he answers or responds. That's what it's like sometimes reading our New Testament epistles. We're reading them. And he's like, well, I'm not sure exactly what the problem is he's dealing with, but we can kind of draw inferences. And it seems with the book of Hebrews that what's going on is the author is writing to believers. In fact, we understand in chapter 6 he is convinced they are believers. By the way, when I say the author, we're not going to spend time arguing today over who the author of Hebrews was, okay? Okay. We can all agree the Holy Spirit wrote Hebrews. Are we okay with that? Okay? Yeah. I mean, some people want to say it's the Apostle Paul. I am adamantly convinced it is not the Apostle Paul. And if you believe it was, we can have a friendly discussion about it afterwards. But it really doesn't matter. And listen, when we get to heaven and we find out who really wrote it, you can apologize to me. It's okay. (laughs) The Holy Spirit wrote the book, and that's really all we need to concern ourselves with. But what the author is doing here is he's writing to people who evidently are of Jewish descent, who have turned to Christ, placed their faith in Christ, have trusted in Christ, but now, because of difficulties, because of persecution, because of other issues, are contemplating going back to that old covenant, and what the author is doing, he's writing to challenge them and encourage them not to turn back to that old covenant, not to turn back to all of that Old Testament that has now been said, all of that has now been fulfilled and been moved forward from. I mean, we see that in Acts chapter 15, we see that in Matthew chapter 5, we see that in Hebrews, and he's encouraging them to press on. And he does so first thread, okay, first thread, Jesus is better. In fact, if you have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter one, in the very beginning, he shows us that Jesus brings a better revelation. He starts by saying, and I read from the ESV, so it might be a little different from what you have in your laps, but in verse one of the whole letter, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In other words, God's revelation, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but God's revelation was much like a dripping faucet. It came a little bit, a little bit. A little bit, a vision here, a word there, a dream there. Uh, little by little, over the centuries, God spoke. He spoke through Moses, and he spoke through, through Samuel, and he th- spoke through the prophets, and he spoke through David. And Little by little, God's revelation came, but notice verse 2, the contrast. But in these last days, and we are living in the last days. They were initiated at the time of Christ. In these last days, he has spoken to us literally in Son. The author is saying here that the ultimate word from God is Jesus Christ. This is why John in his gospel says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and that word became flesh. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten the Son has, the word in most of our translations is the word has declared him or revealed him. It's the word exegetomai, from where we get the word exegete. He has brought out the meaning of... In other words, you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. We can look back in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua. We can go through the 39 books of the Old Testament, and we can learn a lot about God. But none of that compares to the revelation of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus brings a better revelation than all of the Old Testament. So why would you turn back... To that old covenant system, when the revelation brought by Jesus Christ is better. I wish we had time to spend in verses 2 and 3, which where he talks about these wonderful statements about Jesus. He has spoken to us by his Son, he's appointed him heir of all things. Through him, he created the world. By the way, did you realize Jesus is actively involved in creation? When we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth according to Hebrews chapter 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, God created everything through Jesus Christ. That's what it says here in verse 2, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Whatever it looks like to be God, that's what Jesus is. But when you get down to verse 4, he actually moves on now, verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels, and now through the rest of chapter 1, he moves from Jesus brought a superior revelation to Jesus is superior to angels. And he quotes Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage to show how Jesus is better than the angels. We might wonder, why is he so concerned about contrasting Jesus with angels? I don't know. Maybe because angels were widely recognized as the highest form of created being. Maybe because, as in all ages, there are those who tend to want to worship angels. We see that. I mean, we see that with the, the, the prevalence of TV shows today that are about angels and this preoccupation that people seem to have with angels. And what the author here is saying, Jesus is better than angels. There was a belief, and we see it in chapter 2. We see it in Acts 7 with Stephen and Galatians chapter 3. It's somehow the Old Testament was mediated through angels. I'm not exactly sure how that works or what that means, but that's what the Bible teaches. But at the end of the day, as wonderful, as amazing as angels may be, and they are amazing, what the author is saying here is Jesus is better than angels. If an angel were to appear right now in this room, we would probably all be on the floor. And what the author is saying is, yeah, impressed by an angel? (laughs) They're nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than angels. Now remember, this is written to Hebrews, so when we get to chapter 3, the contrast now is not just with Old Testament revelation, not just with angelic beings, but now the contrast is with the hero, and that is Moses. Remember Moses. Moses is the very one who delivered the law from Mount Sinai. Moses, I mean, when you wave your Israel flag, Moses is one of your heroes. And what the author says is Jesus is even better than Moses. In fact, when you read the first six verses of chapter 3, at first you see the author compares the two. And he says, hey, they were both faithful. Jesus was faithful, Moses was faithful, they were both faithful, but then after comparing them, he contrasts them, and he says, yeah, but there's a big difference. Moses was faithful just as as part of a house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. In other words, Moses is just part of this grand people of God that God has been building, but Jesus is God himself who's actually building the house. Or better yet, he says, Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful as a son. And as you would know, and I know we don't live in that day where we have slaves and things like that. Some of you kids think, yeah, I'm a slave. Don't go there. But we don't live in a day where we have slaves. But, you know, slaves are not on the same par as children in the home. And what the author is saying is, Moses was faithful as a servant. But Jesus is not a mere servant. Jesus is you want to turn back to Moses? Don't turn back to Moses because Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter 4, there's a very brief reference and this is not the author's point but in chapter 4, somewhere around verses 8 and 9, we see the mention and by the way, if you use the old King James, it refers the name Jesus is probably there in chapter 4 and verse 8. If Jesus had given them rest, a better translation would be the word Joshua. I mean Joshua and Jesus would be the same name. Okay? But he's not referring to Jesus. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. Because remember, Moses could not lead the people into the promised land. Boy, will that preach. Can I park there for a minute? Moses will not lead people into the promised land. You are never going to get to God's promised rest by keeping God's law. Because if you try to keep God's law, what's going to happen? Same thing has happened to everybody else. You're going to fail. Remember, that's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear, they said in Acts chapter 15. Moses cannot get us to promised rest. We need someone greater than Moses. And who actually took them into the promised land? The answer is Joshua. But what the author is arguing here is, yeah, but that was only a picture. There's one who is greater than Joshua who would come and lead people not into a parcel of land in the Middle East but lead people into their eternal rest in God's presence, and that is Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings a greater revelation. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. We get to the end of chapter 4, and in chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we see is Jesus is a greater high priest. How I wish we had time to flesh this one out. You see, we in our culture, we probably don't recognize, unless some of you were raised in certain traditions, we probably don't recognize the importance of having a priest. What's a priest? I'm interactive, so I'm waiting for an answer. What's a priest? Go- a mediator, a go-between. <laughs> All right? In other words, imagine this. Imagine there is a king, and I owe that king
2: a boatload of money,
5: and it's time to collect. Do I really want to see that king? Not really. So I go, can, can you help me with the king? And Marsha says, I owe him money too. I can't help you. And I go to Fred, can you help me with the king? He says, I owe that king too. Okay. And I go to Phil, Phil, can you help me with the king? He says, I owe the king too. Where can I find help? How can I find somebody to go between us and, and help? And all of a sudden this person comes along and says, you need help with the king, I can handle that. Who do you think you are? I'm his son. Oh. I can make everything right with the king. Now, if that's the case, what do I think of that son? If he says, I'm going to make everything right between you and my dad. I love that <laughs> If you pardon my English, I ain't going nowhere without him, he ain't going nowhere without me. Where he goes, I will follow. If he says, hey, I'm going to go back in the back, I'm, excuse me, I'm going with him. But wherever I go, I want him going with me. You see, he's my go-between. He's my mediator. And that's what a priest was. And what the author tells us at the end of chapter four. If you have your Bibles there, you can look at this one. At the end of chapter 4 and verse 14, since then we have a great high priest. And he's pointing to Jesus. You see, Israel was given a priesthood, and there was a high priest. And what the author argues here is Jesus is a greater high priest than any of those high priests that we have through the Old Covenant. And he continues to argue through chapters 5 and into chapter 7. I mean, those Old Testament priests, they all had a problem, they would die. And once they would die, they had to be replaced by another one. And that one would die and have to be replaced by another one. And that one would die have to be replaced. But this one, because he was raised from the dead and he lives forever, he is forever a high priest. You see, he's greater. And there's this obscure argument about this guy that popped up in the Old Testament, this guy named Melchizedek. Everybody's like, what is this all about? Well, here's a problem. And I, and I want you to feel this problem. When you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament says, when Messiah comes, Messiah will be a king. When Messiah comes, Messiah will be a prophet. And please hear this. When Messiah comes, Messiah will be a priest. Now, we hear that today, and we're like, well, of course. A prophet, a priest, a king? Yeah, that's what Messiah was going to be. But if you know your Old Testament, there's a problem. And here's what it is. To be a king... From what tribe did you have to come? Give a hint. It starts with a J and ends with Uda. You had to come from the tribe of Judah. Right? So if you were going to be a king, you had to come from the tribe of Judah. But if you were to be a priest, from what tribe did you have to come? Levi. So how could Messiah be a priest and a king? Because to be a priest, you have to be from Levi. And to be a king, you have to be from Judah. So how could could Messiah be a priest and a king? The answer is, according to old covenant law, it would virtually be impossible because you couldn't be from two different tribes. But there's this story in Genesis chapter 14 about this guy who comes up on the scene. His name is Melchizedek, and what is his role? He's king and priest. So there's a way to be a king and a priest, and it's like this Melchizedek guy. Why why is that story even there? Well, you read through your Bible, you come to Psalm 110, which is a messianic Psalm, talking about the Messiah, and about the Messiah, it says, you are a priest forever after the order of, not Aaron, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, so when Messiah comes, he will be a great priest. Not like all the priests of the Old Testament, he'll be greater than that. He will be a great priest, he will be king, he will be prophet. You see, Jesus is, Jesus brings a better revelation, Jesus is better than angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than Joshua, and Jesus is better than any of the high priests that ever stood in the temple in Jerusalem. We come to chapter 8, chapter 8 begins with that conclusion. Chapter 8 says, now the point of what we're saying is, we have such a high priest. We have the, the highest of high priests. We have the highest priestiest of all the highest priests. We have the best, and that is Jesus Christ. He's better. But now he continues on, and if you read, not right now, we don't have time, but if you would read verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and into 6, the author mentions three subjects. He mentions sacrifice, he mentions tabernacle, and he mentions covenant. Three subjects. He talks very briefly. He mentions sacrifice, he mentions tabernacle, and he mentions covenant. And what he's going to do through chapters 8, 9, and the first 18 verses of chapter 10. Horrible chapter break. Anyway, chapters 8, 9, and the first part of chapter 10 is he's going to talk about those three subjects. First, in chapter 8, Jesus mediates a better covenant. You see, there was that old covenant that Israel found itself living under. That it just couldn't keep. It kept messing up. It kept breaking God's law. Deuteronomy 28 says, you break my law and here are the curses that are gonna come and people just like you and just like me continue to break God's law over and over and over. That was that old covenant. But in the book of Jeremiah, God promised one day he would make a new covenant and our author quotes that here at length in chapter eight saying, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. What makes this covenant better? I'll tell you what makes this covenant better. When you read Jeremiah 31, or read it as the author has it here in Hebrews chapter eight, here's what you see again and again and again, I like think four times. You've God saying, "I will, I will, I will, I will." He doesn't say, "You obey my law." No, no, no. He just says, "I will do this. I will do this. I will forgive your sins. I will be your God." That's why this covenant is so much greater. You see, that's the significance. When you celebrate communion the next time and you hear where Jesus takes the cup and he says, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. I know we're a conservative church here, but that's almost enough reason to become Pentecostal and jump up and down. (laughs) This cup is the new covenant? You mean I don't have to obey God's law to be saved? The answer is, no, Jesus obeyed God's law for you. This is a new covenant. Not like the old covenant in Israel and no better. I know we're called the holiness. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is to be right in God's eyes, I don't have to try to measure up because I can't measure up. The new covenant says, no, Jesus will measure up for you. So he brings a better revelation. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's a better high priest. He brings about a better covenant in chapter 9, tells us he serves in a better tabernacle. Again, you want to turn back to this Old Testament system where there's this physical building called a tabernacle or a temple? Are you serious? He says, in fact, look at this with me in chapter 9. In chapter 9 and verse 9. If you have your Bibles open, chapter 9, well, starting in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places was not yet opened as long as the first section is still. Ta- it's talking about the physical tabernacle. Remember, there was a holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies. Verse 9. Which is, now my ESV says, which is symbolic for the present age. What is it like if you have a different translation? What word do you have there? An illustration. An illustration. Which is an illustration. In Greek, the word parabole. It's a parable. That tabernacle, that physical tabernacle that God gave was just a parable. What's a parable? A parable is a picture. It's a story that tells a picture. And so what we're told is this physical structure of a tabernacle or a temple is just a picture of something so much greater. And you want to turn back to the system that centers on a physical tabernacle when Jesus has gone into the very tabernacle of heaven? Seriously? Jesus is better. You want to focus on the one that goes into a a holy place and a piece of real estate here on this earth? Or do you want to focus on the one who takes you right into the holy of holies in heaven? Jesus is better. Better covenant. He serves in a better tabernacle. And the rest of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, he talks about how Jesus has offered a better sacrifice. Why is it better? Well, (laughs) that Old Testament... What happened? I mean, you want to go back to the sacrificial system. You want to go back to the book of Leviticus. Well, there's this sacrifice. There's the burnt offering, the sin offering, the grain offering, the wave offering, the heave offering. The wave and heave, I guess they're the same. Anyway, there's all these offerings. Daily offering, daily offering in the morning, daily offering at night. There's the day of atonement, multiple offerings. Offering, 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 offering. In other words, every time you would offer an offering, that's redundancy, every time you would... Bring forth an offering. In the back of your mind, what's, what's going on? The answer is, I'm probably going to have to do this again tomorrow. I have to do it again the next day. I have to do it again the next day. Or the Day of Atonement, which is only once a year. This year is the Day of Atonement. We do what we have to do. In the back of your mind is, we're going to have to do this again next year. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot really take away sin. The blood of one who is better is sufficient once for all time. To justify and sanctify those who belong to see but Jesus is there. You want to jump back to that system where you're offering again and, again and again and again and again and again and again. And every time you offer, you're like, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough. You're gonna have to do it again tomorrow, we're gonna have to do it again next year. Or do you want to go to the one where Jesus offered one sacrifice and sat down. And why did he sit down? Not because he was tired, because of what he said on the cross. It is So which do you want? Do you want a system where built into the system is inefficiency and ineffectiveness? Or do you want a person who offered one sacrifice which is sufficient for all time? Jesus is better. And that's one prominent thread that weaves its way through this epistle. But I said it's only one. There's a second thread, and you should know this, and you should know that it's more than just Jesus is better, because if I were to ask most people, do you know anything at all about the book of Hebrews, what's one chapter that many people may refer to? Chapter 11. The faith chapter. By faith this, by faith that, by faith Moses, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Abel, by faith Rahab, by faith even, even, yeah wait a minute, if the, if the epistle is all about Jesus is better, then what's this thing about faith, by faith? Why is that such a big deal? The answer is because there's a second thread that weaves its way through this epistle. One is Jesus is better. The other is the necessity of continuing in the faith. That's also a prominent emphasis in this book of Hebrews. Let me say it one more time. The necessity of continuing in the faith. You see, Hebrews 11 does not appear in a vacuum. The context, I mean, turn over there. Look at, chapter, look at chapter 10, verse 38. In chapter 10, verse 38, the author quotes from the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He said in verse, uh, what is it, 36? Yeah, Dean, put your glasses on. 36, for you have need of Endurance so that when you've done all the will of God, you may receive what is promised, for yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one, the just, shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink. In other words, he's saying this, don't shrink back, but continue on in the faith. And then what chapter 11 does, and it says, look, here's a great cloud of witnesses. That's how he begins chapter two. And by the way, when he says, here's a great cloud of witnesses, don't misunderstand when I was younger, I used to think, okay, the author's talking about running a race and all these people were witnesses. So there are all these people who are like in the stands watching me and cheering me on. That's not what it's saying. What is a witness? I grew up watching Perry and I what's a witness?
4: Someone who has viewed something.
5: Someone who has viewed something and is called on to what? Testify. To testify. Abel, Noah, Moses, Abraham.
4: All of these people testify
5: that this life of faith can be run. This race called faith can be run. We can make it to the end. And we have all of these people who testify to the fact that it can be done. And they're all testifying to encourage us on, to keep on going, to not give up, to continue to persevere. Because that's a thread that weaves its way through this book. And the way he often does it... Is uncomfortable to many of us, but what he does is he weaves a number of warning passages throughout the book, warning us of the danger of turning away. Let's just look at a couple of them very, very quickly. Go back to chapter 2. In fact, there's a sense where, here's what the author does. Teach, warn, teach, warn, teach, warn, teach, warn. That's the way the book is. Chapter 1, Jesus brings a better revelation. Chapter 1, Jesus is better than angels. Chapter 2, therefore... Hey, Doug, let's look and see what it's there for. Therefore, we must pay more closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, I referred to that earlier, the old covenant, proved to be reliable, every transgression disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, the author is saying, persevere, don't give up, don't turn back, or you're going to lose it. Hang on, hang in there, continue in the faith. He does the same thing over in chapter 3. Jesus is better than Moses. Verse 5, Moses was faithful, chapter 3, verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify, there it is, of the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we hold fast our confidence. Now do not misunderstand. He is not saying Our salvation is dependent upon us. What he's saying is our salvation, if it's genuine, will be demonstrated by the fact that we continue in the faith. Look at verse 14. I want you to see this because there's a big misunderstanding. People say, oh, Hebrews is saying it's up to you to keep yourself saved. No. In my Spanish, no es verdad. Not true. Chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ... If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you see what it's saying? We belong to Jesus Christ if we continue. If we don't continue, that's only proof of what? We never really belonged to him in the first place. Isn't that what John says in 1 John chapter 2? They went out from among us that it may be evident they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have what? They would have continued, which is what the author is saying here. So he's saying, brothers, sisters, continue in the faith. You see... I get really frustrated, and I hope this doesn't step on any toes here. If it does, somebody will tell me afterwards. But I get really frustrated when people say, Well, if you become a believer in Jesus Christ, the first thing you need to do is open your Bible and write the date down in the inside of your Bible, because that will always remind you that your salvation is real. That is foreign from the Scriptures. The Scripture says, Here's how you know that you really belong to Jesus if you continue believing. How do I know that I'm a Christian? The answer, because back in 1974, no! I know I'm a Christian because today I'm believing. I'm continuing in the faith. Isn't that what Chapter Three, and Verse Fourteen says? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm till the end. And by the way, this warning ends over in Chapter Four, where he says. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning even the thoughts and intents of the heart. That passage that we often quote about the word of God is part of a warning. And the author is saying, listen, you might be able to fool other people. Maybe you can even fool yourself, but you are never going to fool God. Because God, through the power of his word, can see right down to the very heart he knows your motives. He knows your thoughts. You can fool others, but you're not going to fool God. You say, that's scary. Yes, the author is trying to scare us. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, another warning. You'd fall away, you may never be re- renewed again. Chapter 10, there's another warning. The certainty of judgment for those who, who, who persist in unrepentant sin. Look, we all sin. John makes that clear in 1 John. We all sin. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us in chapter 10 is the more we continue on in unrepentant sin, the more danger it is that we are just going to turn away completely. And therefore, sin in our lives, while it will happen, is nothing to be messed with. Like John says, when we sin, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all our sin and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Yes, that's true. But the author here is saying, to the extent that you just continue on in your unrepentant sin, the more danger you are in of, bringing, of making your whole profession of faith alive. And in chapter 12, one other one where he talks about, he says, hey, you know what happened to those who refused Moses? What's going to happen to people who refuse Jesus? You turned away from Moses? That brought condemnation? How much worse is it to turn away from Jesus, the very Son of God? So here's my point. Throughout this book, there are two threads that weave their way. One is Jesus is better, so hold on. Jesus is better, so hold on. Jesus is better, so persevere. Don't turn back from your faith. Hold on. And you say, okay, Dean, why? Why are you doing this today? Why? Well, number one, I said it's a good idea to take books and have a good overview. But when I was studying the book of Hebrews one time, I came across a quote. And here's what the quote was. Referring to the author of Hebrews, the person writing this commentary said this. The author loves these people enough to warn them of the danger of falling away. Let me say that again. The author, referring to the author of Hebrews, the author loves these people enough to warn them of the danger of falling away. So here's my question, Dean, do you love the people of Thornville, Thornville Baptist Church enough to warn them of the danger of falling away? And the answer is yes, I do. Yes, I do. I love you enough. warn you of the danger of falling away from your profession of faith. That's what the author does, and that's what I want to do here this morning. In fact, I want to look at one in particular. Go back to chapter 5. Pastor Fred, I'm going to assume this water is for me. If not, it is now. (laughs) In chapter 5, and this is People argue back and forth, is it necessary, is it helpful to know the original languages? And it is helpful. Let me show you a place where I think it becomes very obvious. A lot of times in scripture, um, fancy theological jargon is what's called an inclusio. And what it means is, the author will put a certain word or phrase at the beginning and a certain word or phrase at the end to indicate this is like one section. Here's an example. Um, You may be familiar with Matthew chapter five. We have what are called the Beatitudes. Where the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ah. So he's saying, this is like a big bracket. This this is one package. These beatitudes. The book of Romans actually does that. Chapter 1 and verse 5 talks about the obedience of faith. Chapter 16 at the end talks about the obedience of faith among all nations. These little brackets that say everything in between is dealing with this subject. We have this here in the book of Hebrews. The problem is most of our modern translations do not show us. Let me show you what I mean. If you look in chapter 5, starting in verse 11, after he's talking about Melchizedek briefly, he says about this, we have so much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. What does yours have? Slow? Slow? Slow to learn, okay? It's the Greek word nathros. Again, that and 50 cents will not buy you coffee most places. But it's the Greek word nathros, all right? Since you have become slow to learn. Look over at chapter 6 and verse 12. He just talked about having the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be, my ESV says sluggish. What does yours say? Lazy. Lazy. Okay, chapter 5, slow to learn. Chapter 6, lazy. It's the same Greek word in both, Nathros, Nathrons. So you may be not become slow to learn. So you may not become lazy. So you may not become sluggish. What he's saying here is, I'm encouraging you so that you don't, so that you don't turn away, so that you don't become lazy in your faith. You see, there's a problem here. They were becoming lazy. In fact, look at the chapter 5 verse. Since you become dull of hearing, for dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers some of them had been believers five years, 10 years or whatever, and he's not saying everybody should be up teaching Sunday school classes and be, but he's saying, "You should be able to be teaching others and yet you've not learned enough, that's a danger sign, he says. That's a danger sign that you need to be taught again the basic principles. They have fallen into please hear this: they have fallen into what one author I was reading calls a hobby Christianity. Let that word stick with you today. They've fallen into what one author calls a hobby Christianity. In other words, treating their Christianity basically as a hobby. What's a hobby? A pastime. Something you do when you have some free time. Something you do when you don't have any other commitments and you have a little bit of free time to tend to it. And he's saying here, the author here is dealing with those that are treating Christianity like, like a hobby. Like... Something they dabble in. Brothers and sisters, the United States is full of hobby Christians. It's just something to dabble in. It's something, okay, yeah, I'll go to church on a Sunday morning if I've got nothing else to do. But if there's something else to do, I'm just going to do that because, you know, it's just a hobby. Sunday night, Wednesday night, oh, it's not a big deal. I mean, I just, it's just, it's just a hobby, yeah. And I would ask you, do any of you in this room treat your Christianity like it's a hobby? The second person of the Trinity becomes a man, has his Father's wrath poured out for him on a cross, and we treat Christianity sometimes like it's a hobby. In fact, what I've taught on Hebrews before, people have said to me, Dean, what do you think is the scariest warning passage in all of Hebrews? For me, that's easy. And I might be naive, but for me, that's easy. And it's the first one back in chapter two, and let me explain why. I'm from the coal region of Pennsylvania. Let me explain why. Um, Chapter two warns us of drifting away, lest we drift away. I might be naive when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. To be honest with you, I do not fear waking up tomorrow morning and saying, you know what? I'm through with this. I'm just going to chuck it all. And just, no. No more Christianity. I'm just walking away from it. Maybe I should, but I don't. I don't fear that. I don't fear that tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and make that decision. Or a week from Tuesday I'm just going to wake up and make that decision. I don't fear that. But you know what I do fear? I fear drifting away. Drifting away. I call it used to. The Used to. I used to go to church every Sunday. I used to go to Sunday evenings. I used to go Wednesday nights. I used to read my Bible pretty well every day. I used to pray pretty regularly. I used to take advantage of getting together with other Christians. I used to, I used to, I used to, I used to, but what's happened? I've drifted and I've drifted and I've drifted. And I've drifted. Maybe somebody here this morning, you've drifted. You've been drifting. Maybe physically in your presence, but maybe in your heart, you know this, the fire of my heart just doesn't have. Brother, you're drifting. Sister, you're drifting. The author of Hebrews would say, look to to Jesus. He's better, he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better. He's He's sufficient. Don't drift away. I mentioned, and we'll finish, I mentioned at the beginning we would finish in chapter 10. So turn there, please. Chapter 10, the verses that we had read earlier. Thank you, Doug, for reading those. I want to call your attention to uh, three injunctions, three encouragements. I'm sure somebody would come up with some cute statement, and it is not I. But in verse 22, it says, let us. In verse 23, it says, let us. And in verse 24, it says, let us. So what are the three let us passages? First, in verse 22, he says, let us draw near. Brothers and sisters, we need to continuously be drawing near to Jesus. You know, if Jesus were to appear right now in this room, we would again, worse than angels, we would fall flat on our faces. We see that from Revelation chapter one, because that's what the Apostle John did when he saw the risen Jesus. But instead of falling flat on our faces, what does Jesus say? Jesus holds his arms wide open and invites us to come to him. Please, please hear this. What I'm not saying this morning, what I'm not saying this morning is, brothers and sisters, we need to try harder. We don't need to try harder. We need to trust more. We need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face so that all of these things of earth that cause us to drift away and drift away and drift away and challenge us and pull us away from a passionate love for the Savior, all of these things would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I'm not here this morning telling you you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. No, you don't. What you need to do is you need to focus on the love of the one who gave himself for you. Because we do love him, but why do we love him? Because he first loves us. You want to grow in your love for Jesus? Don't try harder. You want to focus on your love for You want to grow in your love for Jesus? Focus on his love for you. And when you see how much he loves you, the only response is to love him back. says, draw near. Maybe there are some here this morning, you're not in danger of falling away, but you've never drawn near to him in the first place. Remember the words of Jesus, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're here this morning and you are a stranger to Jesus Christ and his saving grace, I challenge you, draw near to him, even if today it's for the first time, and you will find rest for your soul. There are many people here that can talk with you afterwards about that very thing. Verse 22 let us draw near. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast. That's the point of the entire book. Remember what I said earlier. The sign of a Christian is not, here's a decision I made X number of years ago. The sign of a Christian is he or she continues to hold fast to Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is better. He's better. Since Jesus is better, hold on to him. He brings a better revelation. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better high priest. He's better than your hobby. He's better than your job. He's better than money. He's better than sex. He's better than drugs. He's better than music. He's better than sports. He's better than anything. And therefore, hold on to him. Let us hold fast. In verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Brothers, can I tell you this? Sisters, can you hear me, please? We're in this thing together. As I travel to different cultures and I study different cultures, some cultures are very individualistic and some are very collectivist. Guess what the United States happens to be? We're very individualistic, which in some ways is good and in many ways in the church is very, very bad. We want to live our Christianity ourselves, just me, don't worry about me, just leave me alone type of Christianity, and that's far from the scriptures. We have a responsibility. What does it say? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. (laughs) Remember what Cain said back in Genesis chapter 4? What? Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? Yes. You are your brother's and sister's keeper. And he says, let us consider how to stir up one another. Over in chapter 12 and verse 15, he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You know, the author of Hebrews, let me finish with this illustration. The author of Hebrews speaks a number of times about, the, he uses the illustration of running a race. Therefore, let us run the race. Um, as some of you know, 20-some years and 50 pounds ago, <laughs> yes, you can laugh. 20-some years and 50 pounds ago, I was a runner. I did run. I did distance run. Or other races, whatever. And I'd be running, and... and Roll with me, please. I mean, if you're running a running race, okay? Luke, come here. Thank you. Perfect. No, no, Luke, Luke Clayton. I'll let him do it. You don't have to. Do here. <clears throat> if I'm running a race, you come over here. Yeah, I know. Over here. If I'm running a race and Luke and I are running, okay, and all of a sudden I start to get distance on him and I'm pulling away from him, and I look back and realize he's given up. He can't keep up. What was my response?
2: not a barrier,
5: okay? I mean, that's true. Is that the way we run a Christian race? You see, if Luke and I are running this Christian race, and I start to pull ahead of him, and I look back and I see he's starting to fade, what's my responsibility? My responsibility is to go back and grab him and say, man, don't give up, come on. I don't care if i got to carry you. You're coming with me. You see? That's the responsibility we have to run this race called the Christian life. President and sisters, look around this room. You see people all of a sudden, they're starting to fade. They're starting to drop off. They're starting to slow down in this race. What's your responsibility? What's my responsibility? What's our responsibility? Answer, we go back and get them. We go back and grab them, and we pull them, and we bring them with us, and we say, don't give up. Hold on. We can make it to the end. Why? Because Jesus is better. And if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. There's coming a day when people from every nation, every tribe, every people group, every language will be gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb. Let's do everything we can to make sure not one of us in this room is missing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've instructed us with great clarity from your word that Jesus is better. We saw a list of things here that he's better than, that would have been very pertinent to a Jewish audience. And Lord, for us to see that Jesus is better than Moses, it probably doesn't mean the same as it would have to a first century Jew. But Lord, we all have our things that we tend to look to and cling to and want to hang on to that compromise our relationship with Jesus. And I pray that you would just make clear to us this morning, whatever it is that's hindering us, whatever it is that's pulling us away, whatever it is that's dragging us back, that you would just make clear in our eyes that Jesus is better. And then, Lord, when we see that Jesus is better, we will do everything we can to avoid drifting. We will do everything we can to hold on to him. And, Lord, there are times where we will struggle. And I pray that when we struggle, that you would put brothers and sisters in our lives who will love us enough to do what's necessary to come back and grab hold of us and not let us fall away. And, Lord, may we have that same attitude toward others. May we look around and see others that are struggling And as we see them, may we grab onto them and encourage them and point them to Jesus. Lord, I pray that when we gather around that throne one day to worship the lamb, not one of us will be missing. But we need your grace for that and we ask for it in Jesus' name.
4: Our closing hymn is out of the Brown Hymnal, number 315-315. Let's stand. Prayer. Marcy, uh, what are, how are we doing on the dinner today? Is it being catered in? or? Yes, yes uh, I think Laura is down there. and I'm assuming the catering is I'm not sure. Sorry. Okay. So I think we're good. We're good. Okay. So we'll. Do to do a love offering? What's that, dear? Do to do a love offering, now? Uh, love offering. Just put it in the box. Okay. I hope you mark it for our brothers. Uh, what about the meal? We have to uh, pay for that, and, yeah, $6 an inch, and is there a basket down there or we yes, will? Yes, there is. Okay. Um, so... yes, there is. Okay. Right <laughs> Sorry there. about all of this mundane <laughs> stuff, but we have to get it straightened out here. <laughs> all right, let's close in prayer and then we'll uh, dismiss to the basement. Our Lord, we're thankful, thankful for the presentation of your word. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Such a precious book. It reminds us of the better... That we have in Christ. And as far exceeds anything that the Old Testament brethren had in the law. We have the great law keeper. The one who fulfilled the law. Write down every jot, every tittle in the law was fulfilled. And even the sacrifice that would be once for all for his people. We bless thee for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that we can trust it thank you for what we heard today and thank you for the challenges uh, to our faith in christ we give you praise amen all right we'll dismiss to the basement